This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everybody who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. Don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services and our Patreon page. This is our 14th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 48, is entitled Northumbria Erupts. I hope you enjoy the show. Northumbria, by the 11th century, already enjoyed a pretty rich history. In its origins, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria extended, as its name outright says, north from the River Humber. Yorkshire, Bamborough, Durham, these were included in the kingdom originally, but between the 7th and 9th centuries, it managed to extend well into modern-day Scotland to its north, and Strathclyde to its west. It was a coast-to-coast kingdom in its heyday, meaning it enjoyed the fruits of the North Sea as well as the Irish Sea. As for its fate as an independent kingdom, unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. The monastery at Lindisfarne, as you all probably know, was attacked by Vikings, which kicked off what we call the Viking Age way back in 793. And as it was such a huge kingdom geographically, sitting on two coastlines, it was very difficult to protect itself against what would become a tsunami of Viking raiders leading up to the late 800s when the great Viking horde eventually took over Northumbria altogether. Not to mention every other Anglo-Saxon kingdom, that is, except for Alfred the Great's Wessex. Northumbria became, for all intents and purposes, a seat of Danish power, eventually making its capital at Jorvik, or as we know it today the city of York, and the lands that encapsulated Danish authority became known as the Danelaw, even up to the days of King Edward in the mid-11th century. Though it was used as a term to describe the areas in which these Anglo-Danish peoples, well, seemed to be different than most others on the island, that is, they had a few generations of intermarrying between Danish and Anglo-Saxons as well as the implementation of Danish customs, speech, culture, and politics into it all. Yorkshire, to put it lightly, was just a really different place in just about every regard. I say this with respect, of course. According to Mark Morris in his book, The Norman Conquest, quote, "...its inhabitants, for example," persisted in using a Scandinavian counting system for their money and commissioned tombs and memorial crosses of an unmistakably Nordic design. More significant still, they spoke a language that was barely intelligible to their southern neighbors, littered with Scandinavian loanwords, end quote. Morris continues, quote, In Yorkshire, place names we commonly encounter the distinctive Danish B-Y suffix, such as in Grimsby or Kirby. Elsewhere in England, shires were divided into subdivisions called hundreds and hundreds into hides. Well, Yorkshire was divided into ridings, wapentakes, and caricates. Even today, the major streets in York are designated by the Danish word gate, such as Coppergate and Swinegate. End quote. And I, I believe me, I understand I'm probably pronouncing some of these a little differently differently than our friends in, in Yorkshire would, uh, would like me to. Maybe it's Swingate, but it's spelled Swingate, so that's what I'm going with. <laughs> and here's the key, though, to Morris's explanation of Yorkshire and the rest of Northumbria generally. He says, as a result, the north of England was politically divided. And I, you know, not just politically divided, mind you. 
Those in the north, the rougher, far more independent, and very Scandinavian peoples, looked on those south of the River Humber, especially those in Wessex, as, well, pretty boys. They had, in their estimation, softer climates, softer ground with which to farm, softer seas to sail, and softer sensibilities than the colder, harder, rougher north. And what did those softer southerners have to contend with? Psh, the Welsh? Yeah, well, Northumbrians had the Scots, so, so there. Yeah, nothing like a good old game of regional rivalry, right? Here in the States, we do the exact same thing today. In every one of the states, we all have our own uh, jokes. In my home state of Indiana, as a way of poking fun at more rural communities, we tend to put Tucky at the ends of certain town names, which is essentially having a little fun with our southern neighbors of Kentucky. In the end, though, probably unlike Northumbrians of the 11th century, here it's all in good fun. I happen to love the lands of the states around me, and you just take your licks from your neighbors, too. Lord knows that Indiana gets made, up, made fun of, too, plenty. But again, this practice today doesn't exactly result in serious resentment, not all the time anyway, like it did a thousand years ago. After King Alfred defeated the great Viking horde, converted its leader to Christianity, and established Wessex as the one Anglo-Saxon kingdom that never fell, they expanded and eventually consumed the island except for the Welsh kingdoms to the west and the Scottish clans to the north, creating the first united kingdom of England. No pun intended, that is. On the one hand, trading in Viking overlords for softer Anglo-Saxon ones was welcomed by Northerners, as it meant that, given the distances alone, they were more or less free to rule how they wanted, so long as they paid lip service to the House of Wessex, of course. Well, this was how the folks at Bamborough specifically felt, which is the source of more tension throughout the 10th century with those in Yorkshire, which separated Bamborough from Wessex. Okay, so now that we've front-loaded all this about Northumbria, I'm going to read a fairly lengthy excerpt from Morris's book on the Norman Conquest as, well, sometimes it's just best to leave it to the experts. What does all of this have to do with what we're talking about on this season of the podcast? Well, everything, actually. Morris writes, quote, After Canute's takeover, Yorkshire received its own Scandinavian earls, first Eric Hlothier, then Seward, who became bitter enemies with the House of Bamborough. Seward eventually ended the conflict in 1041 by arranging the murder of his, of his northern rival and extending his authority across the whole of Northumbria. End quote. And if you remember, we talked about this episode during Hartha Canute's reign, where Hartha Canute broke his oath of safe passage to the Earl of Bamborough, resulting in Seward stopping the Earl on the road and murdering him. Okay, back to Morris. He says, quote, Such was the situation in northern England at the time of Seward's death in 1055. Divided culturally and politically, it was at the same time largely left to its own devices, for the good reason that it was a long way away and hard to reach. Thanks to the wide Humber estuary and the bogs and swamps of Yorkshire and Cheshire, only a few roads linked the north to the south, and none of them were good. The 200-mile journey from London to York usually took a fortnight or more, assuming the roads were passable and that no robbers were encountered en route. By far the quickest and safest way to reach York from southern England was by ship. For this reason, Northumbria was only subject to the lightest of royal supervision. The King of England had very little land in Yorkshire. Coins were minted in York bearing his face and name, but he himself was never seen. Beyond the Tees, meanwhile, there was no permanent royal presence at all. No royal estates, no mints, no burrs, no shires. For most people in southern England, including the king, the north was a faraway country where they did things differently, about which they knew and understood very little. End quote. So at last, here we find ourselves, <laughs> finally, back in the year 1055 and witnessing Seward's replacement as Earl. 
Remember, Seward lost his eldest son, most likely, at the Battle of the Seven Sleepers in Scotland just a year prior. Osbjorn would have taken over Northumbria, most likely, when Seward died, but that's not an option anymore. And Waltheof, Seward's other son, was far too young to even be considered an earl. So who would be trusted with the earldom of such a different region of the kingdom? Ideally, one would be looking at another noble family in Northumbria, one who understood the culture and the people, and especially the history and customs. Northumbria was fiercely independent at this point, and more than that, it wasn't exactly the most peaceful and cooperative bunch in the kingdom. In fact, it was well known for its peculiar Scandinavian custom of blood feuds. You know that biblical concept of the sins of the father? Well, the Northumbrians embodied it, which, as you can imagine, caused quite a bit of violence in the pursuit of solving problems amongst themselves. Knowing all of this, which King Edward no doubt did, if I were a betting man, I would say Edward would look for a loyal-ish northerner to take Seward's place. So, naturally, Edward did the opposite. In fact, he doubled down on the opposite, and he raised Tostig Godwinson to the title of Earl of Northumbria. Well, you can imagine how this news went over north of the Humber. Not only do they not have a northerner to rule them, but they have some namby-pamby southerner to tell them what to do. So Tostig, as his name obviously implies, was the third son of the powerful Earl Godwin of Wessex, the younger brother to Harold, the current Earl of Wessex, and older brother to Earls Leofwina and Gerth. When it came to Northumbrians, familial stock meant quite a bit, and it seemed that Tostig's only saving grace was that he was half Anglo-Saxon and half Danish. And there's no telling what his initial level of acceptance was exactly, but we can infer from the complete lack of mention in the records that, at the very least, the Northumbrians gave him the slightest chance because it took almost a full decade to hear the first legitimate big complaint. So Tostig's rule probably began pretty smoothly back in 1055. There was no immediate negative side effects anyway to Tostig taking the reins necessarily. But the fact, again, that some namby-pamby southerner was now ruling Northumbria didn't exactly strike these northerners as much of a good thing at all. Seward was at least a Dane in the traditional sense, and he was married to an Anglo-Danish woman when he passed, so that wasn't too bad. But a southerner? You've got to be kidding. However, Tostig was unlike most other Southerners, again, in that he was Anglo-Danish himself, his father, Godwin, being Anglo-Saxon, and his mother, Danish royalty. His mother, Githa Thorkel's daughter, raised her children to speak both excuse me, Anglo-Saxon and Danish fluently. So this certainly helped Tostig out considerably when he first arrived in York. And there were three other things that seemed to smooth Tostig's initial arrival as Earl. He and his wife, Judith of Flanders, were a pretty devout Catholic couple who were known for their strict adherence to the many Catholic policies and customs. Almost immediately, Tostig and Judith visited the venerable Church of St. Cuthbert in Durham, and they lavished the monastery with a healthy dose of their wealth. This was a great PR move, as it not only endeared the New World to the people who benefited in the surrounding areas, but it also bought an almost undying support by the monks there. Okay, so next, he lifted a local nobleman to the position of what you might call a deputy. His name was Kopsig. He was well known in the area, and he was a major landowner in Lincolnshire and North Riding in Yorkshire. And finally, Tostig seemed to have continued the previous Earl's support of Malcolm Canmore in the young man's war for the crown of Scotland. In fact, his relationship with Malcolm at first referred to the two men as sworn brothers by Simeon of Durham decades later. As for the Northumbrians, all of this was pretty good. Acceptable at the very least. But in 1058, England was under attack again by the exiled Earl Elfgar, who had rallied none other than King Griffith of Wales and Harold Hardrada's son, Magnus, and proceeded to pound away at England. 
Earl Tostig seems to have dodged the bullet when it comes to taking the blame. These were seemingly lightning raids by skilled Norsemen who unleashed on the Irish Sea coastal settlements of Northumbria, where Strathclyde used to be. But when Malcolm killed both King Macbeth and Macbeth's son, King Lulach, a year later, in 1058, Malcolm Canmore, as we've said, became King Malcolm III, and King Malcolm III was escorted to either Gloucester, far to the south, or York, a place far enough north that kings rarely, if ever, visited, to meet with King Edward and pencil out a deal between England and Scotland. So good stuff from Tostig in his first few years as Earl, a gig no one actually thought would work out. However, Tostig was that stereotypical rule follower who loved it when laws were followed, and, the, and when they're broken, he loved it when justice was administered. I mean, Tostig was the hall monitor, so to speak, of 11th century England. He was pious in his faith, and he was strict in his judicial and executive responsibilities. As you can imagine, this didn't go down well with the majority of Northumbrians. It's like having a job where the boss kind of leaves you alone, but then he's replaced by some organized Brad who comes in and actually holds your feet to the fire. Yeah, it's that kind of resentment. Well, Tostig had his hands full when it came to justice in Northumbria, as it was the last vestige of rampant crime and outlawry in the kingdom. Its roads were treacherous, its coasts were patrolled by pirates, and Tostig accepted the challenge to clean it all up. A quick story from Harold, the last Anglo-Saxon king by Ian Walker, showcases Tostig's culture of justice he quickly implemented. It reads, quote, The Earl is widely reported to have enforced law and order in his earldom, something generally approved of by the church, and specifically reflected in a later Durham miracle story. This tells of a certain Barkwith, one of Earl Tostig's men, zealously pursuing a fugitive outlaw called Alden Hamal into St. Cuthbert's church. Naturally, Barkwith was struck down by the saint, for the, this violation of sanctuary, but the story nevertheless reflects Tostig's eagerness to enforce justice, end quote. But then Walker goes on to say this, quote, The Vita Edwardi also speaks of Tostig reducing, quote, the number of robbers by mutilating or killing them, end quote. So with a cleaning up the streets civic program underway, Tostig thought it wise to... <laughs> implement a new tax policy for the people of his earldom. And nothing gets you beloved by your people quite like talking about changing the established tax structure, resulting in more revenue in the hands of the government. Yeah, not exactly a recipe for success. And being Northumbria, the earldom with the least economic output of them all, and one whose fierce independence always seems to offer them quite a bit of latitude in the eyes of the king, well... They were also taxed, according to Mark Morris in that same book of the Norman Conquest, at one-sixth the rate of other regions. So you can imagine when that freedom from increased taxation was reined in by this Wessex guy. And so it was that in 1061, with Northumbria undergoing a bit of a slowly rolled out transformation, Tostig clapped his hands, smiled broadly, and walked away as a man proud of his accomplishments. While the rest of his earldom seethed quietly, Tostig and his wife, Judith, joined the rather large retinue of nobility and holy men heading south to Rome. It was time for a little good old-fashioned Catholicking. Now, full disclosure, sure, the chance to make the dangerous overland trip across France and Italy to Rome on pilgrimage was certainly enticing, but Tostig's real reason went, uh, it went much deeper than that. At the moment, there was an opening in the Archbishopric of York, the second most influential archbishopric in England. And as it is, Tostig could use all the help he could get in the north. King Edward, looking to set his new earl up for success, raised a man named Eldred to the post. However, and this is huge, this would be the second archbishop in England, alone without the support, or pallium, of the Pope. Not a great look for England, 
You may be wondering about Archbishop Stigand in Canterbury, but Stigand has been refused his pallium by successive popes since Leo, so there's probably no way he's ever getting one. Tostig's mission was to bring home a pallium for his new archbishop in York, but due to rumors of pluralism in England, plural, pluralism being the practice of holding multiple ecclesiastical offices simultaneously, Pope Nicholas II refused Eldred the pallium. The trip was a disaster for England and for Tostig. So they headed north, despondent. And in walks Gerard of Galleria, a Tuscan man who had wrapped himself up in papal politics in previous years. He stole a large contingent of Tostig's entourage. Why? Well, he wanted to embarrass the Pope and turn the people across Christendom against the Pope, replacing him with one Gerard was more acquainted with. One member of Tostig's crew was most likely along for the ride solely as an insurance policy. A young man named Gospatric was of the house of Bamborough. His father was Uhtred the Bold, the elderman of Bamborough, who was sentenced to die in 1016 by King Canute. And Gospatric's elder brother, you might remember, Earl Edwulf of Bamborough. And he was the guy Hartha Canute granted safe passage to, as we mentioned earlier on the show, to only, uh, to, only to allow Earl Seward of Northumbria to murder him as he crossed southbound through Yorkshire. And then Seward then usurped his earldom into Northumbria, we see here in the early 1060s. Well, this Gospatric of Bamborough, being of nobility, not only spoke the part of, of a nobleman, but he dressed it as well. When this Tuscan, Gerard, held up the large party of pilgrims, instead of Tostig stepping forward as the highest-ranking member present, Gospatric beat him to it, thus taking one for the team, you could say. As Tostig marched swiftly back to Rome, Gospatric was soon outed, and instead of killing the young man, Gerard applauded his cunning and audacity, as Morris puts it, and released him. Here's what Peter Rex's take on what happens next in his book, Edward the Confessor. He says, quote, Tostig, meanwhile, had stormed back to Rome and furiously confronted an embarrassed pope. He insisted that the fact that his embassy had been attacked while under the pope's protection was an outrage, meriting withdrawal of the payment of Peter's pence, the subsidy paid by the English to the Rome, or to Rome. He berated the Pope for not securing the safety of travelers and declared that no one would fear excommunication by a Pope unable to control the surroundings of Rome itself. Nicholas and the Cardinals, alarmed at the prospect of losing such a lucrative source of revenue, caved in. Tostig was invited to sit in Synod with the Pope and a compromise was worked out to allow Eldred his pallium. Essentially, the compromise was this. One, Pope Nicholas II excommunicated, excommunicated Gerard of Galleria. Two, so as to avoid any pluralism, Eldred was to give up his bishopric in Worcester and assume only the archbishopric at York. Three, King Edward had to accept the Pope's legates to oversee the new appointment at Worcester, as well as allow, I suppose we could call it, an audit of state of the state of the English church, which in the end checked all the boxes and England would, got a glowing report back in Rome. Number four, Pope Nicholas II was also to give his blessing to continue to grant and expand the privileges to King Edward's pet project, the Abbey at Westminster. And for good measure, number five, Tostig was showered with goodies during the rest of his stay in Rome. It was a strange journey to Rome, to say the least. And when Tostig returned with stories for his king, his friends, and his family, well, he learned that King Malcolm III of Scotland, his quote-unquote sworn brother, had taken the Earl's absence as a green light to first attack the cradle of English Christendom, the Abbey at Lindisfarne, and then leading a much more complicated invasion of the Scottish lowlands called Cumbria, currently in the realm of Northumbria since 1016, when the kingdom of Strathclyde folded into Northumbria. Well, as part of his reward for his daring and loyalty, Tostig had given on the journey this area of Cumbria in northwestern Northumbria to Gospatric to oversee. Upon their return, 
Tostig seemed to all but ignore the news of the unsuccessful Scottish invasion because there's nothing in the records of any retaliatory action taken. This, of course, didn't sit well with Gospatric, as this was his new region to oversee, and it was left bruised and burning in the wake of Malcolm's raids. How was he to rule a broken territory? In addition, there is evidence that could swing either way on this, but Malcolm's invasion might not have been entirely fruitless, because Gospatric was seriously miffed about something in the records. And by the Domesday Book, in a couple in a couple decades, it showed large parts of Cumbria, not part of Northumbria. So maybe Gospatric came back to a substantially smaller Cumbria. Either way, not a good look for Tostig in late 1061. And a lot, had, a lot had happened in the decades so far, as we know now. But between the death of Earl Elfgar in 1062-ish to Tostig's first formal recorded complaint in 1065, it's worth mentioning that a little shifting had occurred to his south, including his brother's marriage. Yeah, so up to the early 1060s, Harold Godwinson, surprisingly, never officially married anyone though he had an intelligent, beautiful woman named Edith the Fair, not to be confused with Harold's sister, Queen Edith Swanneck, which can also be translated to the fair. Ew. Whom he fathered no children with, but oddly the relationship seemed to match what in a couple centuries would amount to a genuinely loving, romantic, chivalric relationship. Something nearly unheard of in the 11th century. It's strange in my opinion, but he was rumored to be with this lady until the death of Earl Elfgar and King Griffith. It seems like a non sequitur, but it actually weaves nicely into the narrative here. See, if you remember, Elfgar had given his daughter, another beautiful, intelligent woman named Edith, to King Griffith as a way of solidifying peace between Mercia and Wales, which resulted in Elfgar's exile and the year 1058 that was so traumatizing that the chroniclers could only manage to say that to describe it all would be simply too tedious a task. Well, with both Elfgar and Griffith dead, and with Elfgar's son, Edwin, as the new Earl of Mercia, a new leaf could be flipped, one could say. There's a lot of conjecture concerning Harold Godwinson's marriage to Edith the Fair, but this is my best estimation based on the records and texts I've read. By Harold marrying Edith the Fair, it essentially locked down the already chaotic post-Griffith Wales. Wales no longer had any inroads in England, so they were kind of left to duke it out amongst themselves, you could say. Next, by Harold marrying Edith the Fair, it established a potentially prosperous link between the earldoms of Wessex and Mercia, and by extension, Mercia with the Midlands, East Anglia, and Northumbria all regions held by the Godwinsons. And finally, by Harold marrying Edith the Fair, Harold could officially begin his own path toward succession in the Earldom of Wessex. Now this marriage could also do something else that we'll get into in a little bit, so hang on tight to that last point I want to make on Harold and Edith's marriage. So let's head back north now and check out the implications of Tostig's decision not to seek any sort of retribution against King Malcolm III for the Scots' invasion of Cumbria. Gospatric, remember, was the grandson of Uhtred of Bamborough and brother of Earl Edwulf, and he was feeling pretty betrayed by Tostig at that decision at this point. But there was something else simmering in 1062 that didn't help Tostig out at all either. It turns out that by promoting Gospatric, he sent a shot across the bow of Northumbrians loyal to Seward's son and heir, Waltheof. Not only was Waltheof too young at the time of Seward's death to become Earl, but now the new Earl is raising those associated with the House of Bamborough amongst the northern nobility. This was in direct opposition to what Seward had done. So Tostig began to hear murmurings of his own opposition. What happens when the strong men in society begin to feel pinched? They retaliate in the only way they know how. They squeeze their grip tighter and tighter. This could have manifested itself in taxes and fines and whatnot, but 
I'm inclined to think that Tostig's sense of justice was probably the route he took. But then, in either 1063 or 64, most likely after Harold's defeat of King Griffith in Wales, Tostig invited two of the leaders of the Waltheof camp to York to meet with him in his private chambers. Again, this is more on the seaward side of politics. Gamal, son of Orm, and Ulf, son of Dolphin, were led into the chambers where they were most certainly debriefed on what was at stake here. And when Gamal and Ulf refused to budge, Tostig murdered them, both where they stood. For Northumbrians, this was beyond outrageous. This was akin to defying your own order of safe passage. And in 1064, according to the Vita Edwardi, while everyone was gathered at King Edward's Christmas court enjoying some figgy pudding, on Queen Edith's orders, this Gospatric was assassinated. For some reason. I mean, he obviously disagreed with Tostig about something, but, but exactly why isn't clear. I wish I had more to share, because it all seems to have made some pretty big leaps here. But between the lack of records and the conflicting reports, it's a pretty difficult task to sort out. Without question, though, is that 1065 would be the beginning of the end of Tostig Godwinson. Northumbrian nobility then revolted, and it wasn't just some rebellion occurring 26 miles above the heads of the peasantry, either. Everyone seemed pretty miffed by this point, as taxes are a thing nobody enjoys, especially raised taxes. <laughs> taxes, am I right? So Thanes Gamelbairn, Dunstan, and Glunyern are mentioned in the records as being members of the opposition to Tostig, which is saying something in that it seemed to be pretty widespread. When referring to these taxes, Ian Walker in his book Harold, the Last Anglo-Saxon King says, quote, Earl Tostig seems to have made the mistake of attempting to redress this anomaly and impose on the northern shires a level of tax closer to that found in the rest of England. The exact change made is unfortunately unknown, but that it may have caused the rebellion is suggested by the widespread participation of minor thanes in this revolt, all of whom, naturally, would be affected by such a change. Thus, Chronicle C speaks of the participation of, quote, all the thanes of Yorkshire, end quote, and not that, quote, all Tostig's earldom unanimously deserted him, end quote. While Chronicle D adds, quote, all the thanes of Northumberland, end quote, as well. The rebellion was also led by fairly minor figures in contrast to the leaders of other revolts, such as Earls Godwin and Elfgar, end quote. Okay, so very quickly, records indicate that Tostig went on a little bit of a rampage in the early parts of 1065, administering uh, that Walker, what Walker calls arbitrary justice, including killings and forfeitures. This isn't exactly a recipe for success, especially after all that's happened. But here is where a comparison of Tostig's tenure and Seward's tenure as earls of Northumbria are worth a look. To me, it boils down to one thing that separated Seward from Tostig, and that is the fact that Seward never had any large rebellion happening in, on his watch. Sure, blood feuds occurred, but that was to the Northumbrians as baseball is to Americans. Intergenerational family blood feuds was a Northumbrian pastime. So each earl had plenty of that happening. But what's different was that on top of excessive taxation and levies, Tostig Godwinson pushed his way between two feuding families to impose some of that good old-fashioned hall monitor Tostig justice. It's like walking out onto the field and taking the ball away from the pitcher. So on October 3rd, 1065, Thanes across Yorkshire took the city of York itself and ran out or murdered all who were loyal to Earl Tostig. They stole Tostig's money straight out of his treasury and they murdered Tostig's huscarls, Amund and Ravenswart. This was no longer a grumbling opposition. This was war. Kopsig, Tostig's right-hand man, escaped somehow, but no word as to where he was during the initial attack. Thanes from across Northumbria met quietly and decided their next course of action. They decided to have a vote. 
not on who their leader should be, but who their leader shouldn't be. And they essentially voted Tostig out of the gig of Earl of Northumbria, which ultimately is laughable because King Edward was really the only one with that authority. But you can't help but admire these little sparks of representative government there in the hills and bogs of northern England in the 11th century, a testament to their independent natures. These things declared Tostig an outlaw. And then they held another vote, a vote as to whom they wanted their leader to be this time. And they voted on a man named Morcar, which is really interesting too. If Northumbria ever actually had gotten along with their southern neighbors, one could make the case that Mercians to them were somewhat tolerable. And Morcar was the younger brother of Earl Edwin of Mercia, both sons of the late Earl Elfgar and grandsons of Seward's longtime ally, Earl Leofric of Mercia. It seems a political shift is also occurring in the north in 1065. But this was also a slap in the Tostig southern face, too. See, a decade earlier, in 1055, do you remember how Tostig was chosen for an earldom while Elfgar was overlooked? Well, as for Elfgar, that was a big sting, and there's no doubt his boys probably held on to that. So in 1065, with Edwin of Mercia, when he was in the position to get a little payback, they took advantage of it. And what better way than to undermine Tostig's rule in Northumbria and push to replace him with his own brother? However, even in light of this, Morcar was a curious choice, as there were a few others with stronger claims to the Northumbrian earldom than he had. Oswulf, son of the slain Earl Edwulf of Bamborough, he was still around. Waltheof, son of Earl Seward, as soon as he was of age, of course and Gospatric, Tostig's man in Cumbria, as he was the grandson of Uhtred. But again, Gospatric was very recently killed. Even with that, though, these northerners weren't idiots. They could see the writing on the wall. When 1065 began, there were two major families ruling England, the Godwinsons and the line of Leofric of Mercia. Even the queen Edith was a Godwinson, and so everyone pretty much knew who had the monopoly of power here. If Northumbria promotes one of their own, it's pretty much politically on its own. But if they welcomed a direct alliance with Mercia, then that might prove to shift the balance of power on the island, especially if they were able to secure a lasting peace with Scotland to the north. So, Morcar, son of Elfgar and brother of Earl Edwin of Mercia, was their best candidate. So, armed to the teeth, the nobility of Northumbria torched its way south to meet with King Edward, their new Earl Morcar with them. King Edward sent Harold Godwinson to meet and discuss a favorable outcome. The rebels came with a new Earl, clearly intent on ousting the old. But Earl Harold was there with two objectives. One, keep Tostig as Earl of Northumbria, and two, achieving peace across the north. Obviously, these two objectives were at odds. Harold didn't have an armed regiment with him, but his northerners did. It was an interesting dynamic, one hearkening back to his own father's rebellion outside Gloucester in 1051. As Ian Walker puts it, quote, The specter of civil war was something which Earl Harold drew back from, just as his father and King Edward had done during the earlier crisis. End quote. The meeting was held in Oxford, and it wasn't a pleasant one at all. The rebels threatened nothing less than outright warfare if their demands weren't met. There would be no negotiation, much to Harold's dismay. And one thing is worth mentioning that plays into Harold's actions during this period. See, Harold Godwinson. He was sent to Normandy, curiously, in 1064, a year earlier. Why? Well, that's actually a fantastic question. No one really knows for sure, to be quite honest, but we do have some really good guesses. The two most prominent guesses are these. One, King Edward sent Earl Harold to secure William's acceptance of the crown of England as soon as Edward passed away. Okay, number two. Harold went to secure the release of English hostages. 
hostages. All right, so first, let's, let's deal with the first one here about securing William's acceptance of England when Edward died. That's preposterous, in my opinion. First of all, why would an English monarch commit his kingdom to a foreign duke? And second, Edward just went through all the trouble of bringing back his nephew's family and then elevating Edgar to Etheling just a couple years earlier and raising him in the English court to take over one day. And that day is coming very soon as well. There is no need to still be seeking a successor. Oh, and it's worth mentioning that the only places this reasoning is even found in is in Norman sources. So, propaganda much? Now, the second idea surrounding Harold visiting Normandy to secure the release of hostages is much, much more reasonable. Do you remember back in the Godwin exile episodes when Godwin returned and forced Edward's hand near London? And when the Witton met, do you remember Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, whom we know as Robert of Jumiege today? He ran away to Normandy, barely escaping with his life. Do you remember that? Yeah. I mentioned that he also nabbed a couple people on his way out. And when he arrived in Normandy at the court of his duke to tell what had happened, he presented Duke William with these two people. One, a young man named Wolfnoth. And another, the other, a boy named Hakan. King Edward had received these two hostages as a peace offering from his rebellious Earl, Earl Godwin, back in 1051, before being exiled. Robert of Jumiege stole them and brought them to Normandy, so Wolfnoth and Hakan were now po- political prisoners of William's. And here's where the plot thickens. Wolfnoth, if you remember, was the brother of Harold Godwinson, and Hakon was the son of Swain Godwinson, or nephew of Harold. Harold was seeking the release of his family by a duke who had no legitimate claim to them. However, Harold's journey went sideways. Harold's small fleet shipwrecked along the coast of Pontieu, which was a bit of a pirate haven at the time, William saw a grand opportunity when he heard this news, so he called his most trusted warriors and rode quickly for Pontieu, and the way it was spun was that William sought to save and rescue Earl Harold from those murderous rascals, when it was actually, as Ian Walker says, quote, William now held in his hands the greatest nobleman in England, second only to the king, and he intended to take full advantage of the situation. End quote. William brought Harold back to Rouen and lavished him with grand treatment, but word of, his, of the rambunctious Bretons reached William's ears during that time, so he invited Harold on a bit of a trip out west. Road trip! Two guys on the open road seeking fame and fortune. What could be more of a bonding experience than murdering one's enemies together, right? Well, near the river. I'm going to butcher this, Kuznan, I'm going to go with that, in Breton, it seems Harold bravely jumped into quicksand and rescued a couple of William's trusted knights, which is shown on the Bayou Tapestry, no doubt a testament to Harold's abilities and strength and masculinity, I suppose. The Breton leader, Conan, withdrew to Dull as William and Harold approached, and just as William felt satisfied that his point was made, News of an old rival coming to Conan's rescue came, and William couldn't resist turning back to Brittany. That's right. Count Geoffrey of Anjou, or Geoffrey Martel, was supporting Conan's Breton forces, but both armies stayed just beyond reach until their supplies ran out, and the whole engagement fizzled to nothing. It's crazy to think Count Geoffrey Martel of Anjou didn't go anywhere during this time. Harold had learned a lot during this time about Norman strategy on this little adventure without question. He learned about Norman tactics and their devastating use of cavalry. He also got a sense of how desperate Normans were to feeling legitimized amongst their peers. And this desperation could lead to incredibly deadly actions. But before allowing Harold to head back home, because let's face it, Harold was a prisoner for all intents and purposes, William is said to have secured Harold's pledge of loyalty to the Duke 
in exchange for Harold's position in England not to be changed at all. Remember how serious the oath was to 11th century politics around Europe. It was the basis for judicial procedure and social relations, as Walker describes it. So when the events of 1066 finally played out, you'll see the outrage that William had toward Harold. But let's not jump ahead quite yet. It's also necessary that we mention the story as only being found on the Bayou Tapestry and in Norman records. Nowhere in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, even after the conquest, is Harold's trip even mentioned. Has propaganda struck again? With all this in mind, Harold is meeting with the Northumbrians in 1065 after his Norman adventures, and he is well aware of William's intentions and his capabilities. If he risked Northumbria being an all-out revolt, and Edward dies before young Edgar Etheling could wear the crown, then England could be put in a very, very difficult situation. Should he side with his brother and have Northumbria remain in rebellion? Or should he concede and make peace before it's too late? Despite the trouble, as Ian Walker says, quote, the fear of civil war, as in the crisis of 1051 to 52, certainly loomed large in men's minds, end quote. And I keep repeating that for a reason. The events of 1051 and 52 truly affected uh, the kingdom of England. Uh, at their very core, the nobility was shocked that it could possibly come to those, to those levels of aggression. And the possibility of civil war did loom large in the minds of those uh, living at the time and making these decisions. So Harold had a very difficult choice to make, regardless of the fact that, as Peter Rex says in his book, Edward the Confessor, quote, Edward began to rage furiously, issuing orders for the feared to be called out and the rebellion to be crushed. But cooler heads, led perhaps by Earl Harold, counseled that it was inadvisable to attempt a campaign at that time of year, as winter was fast approaching and the weather was already changing. They stressed the difficulty of raising sufficient men in time. Most of all, though, they expressed horror, as in 1051, at the prospect of civil war and strove to calm the raging spirit of the king's urging that no attack should be mounted, but that negotiations should continue, end quote. The negotiations moved to Northampton, and King Edward inched closer at Oxford while the proceedings occurred. These northern armies were at that point right against the borders of a friendly Mercia and a potentially hostile Wessex. And there were, and, and, and there were ugly scenes reported in those areas while negotiations proceeded. It didn't matter that one side was doing everything to avoid war. The other side was going to see to it, if necessary. Harold returned to Oxford on October 27, 1065, and he spoke with the king. Harold recommended that these rebels' requests should be met due to these Northumbrian steadfastness, that should civil war be necessary to meet their ends, they were willing to see it happen. It's non-negotiable. Walker continues, quote, Nevertheless, Harold's statement must have caused shock and consternation for the king, for Earl Tostig, and for the rest of the Godwin family. The king demanded that troops be called out to restore Tostig by force. It seems that Tostig was so stunned and furious that he actually accused his brother of inciting the whole rebellion and with the aim of expelling him from the kingdom. Indeed, so emphatic was Tostig with his accusation that Harold had to purge himself of this charge by swearing an oath, end quote. And this was what's so strange about this whole incident. Harold and Tostig had absolutely zero incidents recorded as being rivals of each other's. In fact, any and all mention of these two men together never cast doubt on the fact that they were closely bonded and worked well together. Walker even says, quote, Queen Edith herself is stated to have been confounded by the quarrel between her brothers, and there is no, there is no reason to doubt this, end quote. In the end, King Edward and Queen Edith wholly supported Tostig in Northumbria, as well as his mother 
and presumably his two brothers, Earls Leofwina and Gerth. However, something changed King Edward's mind about keeping Tostig in the north, and it had to have been the threat of civil war. Even at a sprightly 63 years old, King Edward was getting up there in years. There was simply no need to invite more trouble to the kingdom if it could be avoided. Even if he was confided, or excuse me, even if he was confident in Harold's abilities to rally the levies in Wessex, the Midlands, East Anglia, and those still loyal to Tostig in Northumbria, as well as Mercia if he could swing it, but which honestly looks unlikely, as it was Edwin's brother propped up by the rebels to replace Tostig. Regardless of Edward's confidence in winning the war, it was just an unnecessary burden at the time. Well, it came down to King Edward deposing Tostig, albeit regretfully. Tostig, however, <laughs> refused his king's order. From sheer humiliation, Tostig moved his family to his wife's homeland of Flanders, without so much as a plan, but still, Tostig refused to concede his earldom. And as we know, the only other recourse for refusing your king was, you guessed it, exile. And there's something else that we should all be very familiar with by now in the podcast. Hell hath no fury like a spurned Godwinson. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about the rift cracking open between Harold and Tosta Godwinson, as well as the rift cracking open between England's north and its south. Please keep sharing the show on your favorite podcasting service, and please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and even corrections. The link to the new website is up and running, so head over there for updated episodes and blogs and news too. Also, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or Anchor, or even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. It really does go a long way. Next week? <laughs> At last. Next week? Next week's 1066. You know you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>